1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 21, Peter writes, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed, for you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In the second chapter, Peter presents the themes at the beginning of the chapter of renouncing worldliness. You'll remember when we began chapter 2, he said, therefore laying aside all malice, all deceit, all hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking, that there was a turning away of slander and hypocrisy There was in verses 1 through 3. And then it moves to the subject of our relationships with each other and with the Lord Jesus Christ in verses 4 through 12. And so it moves from renouncing to relationship to the theme of respect in verses 13 through 20. Remember, we're to respect the civil authorities, the man-made institutions. In verses 13 through 20, we respect our employers in verses 18 through 20. And everyone, for that matter, in verse 17. Respect and submission is further encouraged through our supreme role model, the Lord Jesus Christ, in verses 21 through 25. And since he has introduced the subject of submission... We've already understood that when the subject of submission comes up, almost always the circumstance of suffering comes up. Because when you submit to human institutions, when you submit on the job, when you submit to governments, sometimes that leads to not good things, but difficult things. Clearly that was true in the life of Jesus and the lives of the early saints. The road to glory was paved with suffering. And so the second section begins with a call or a summons for believers. We're called to suffer even as Christ suffered for us in verse 21. So there are three great big S's that I want you to remember. Number one, the standard. Jesus is our standard. Number two, the substitute. Jesus is our perfect substitute. Number three, the shepherd. Jesus is our perfect shepherd. And so again, in this section, Peter will remind us of our role model's identity. He is the Lord Jesus, our sinless Savior, of what Jesus did. He was our substitute. He died on the cross in verses 23 and 24. And to the Savior's motivation, why he did what he did. How his wounds might heal us of the terrible malady of sin. And how we are to turn from our sin to the shepherd in verse 25. So again, looking at verse 21, it says, For to this you were called. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Now, in the New Testament, there are seven sovereign summons. There are things that are, the believer is called to. As, as a matter of fact, the unbeliever is called to salvation in Romans chapter 8, verse 30. There's the call to sonship in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. 
Behold what manner of love the Father's bestowed upon us, lavished upon us, that we should be called the children of God. There's the call to salvation, the call to sonship, the call to sanctification. We saw that in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and also in 1 Peter chapter 1 and at the beginning of chapter 2. The call to salvation, sonship, sanctification, the call to service in Mark 10, 43. The call to separation in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 7. The call to submission or subjection. Children to parents in Ephesians 6 1. Wives to husbands in Ephesians chapter 5 and 1 Peter chapter 3. Employees to employers. Citizens to government. All believers to God in Romans chapter 12. And so the last call is this call to suffering. Now, the Living Bible translates verse 21 this way. This suffering is all part of the work that God has given to you. Christ who suffered for you is your example. Follow in his steps. But we live in a world and we live in a society that says, what if, what if I don't want to be called to suffering? What if I want to embrace a theology that says, well, suffering is because I haven't appropriated the resources of God. I'm the head and not the tail, for heaven's sake. Well, that's because you don't understand biblical theology. As a matter of fact, here, this is a calling that's been given by God because here is the example that's been given to us. The road to glory leads through humility and brokenness. We sang about it earlier. What is submission, by the way? In part, it must mean the voluntary surrender, the voluntary cooperation with someone. Submission isn't involuntary, it is voluntary. First, out of love and respect for the Lord, and second, out of love and respect for the person. Submission to non-believers, submission to harsh and unfair treatment is understandably difficult. No one wants to be treated unfairly and Nobody wants to be treated harshly. But Peter's pointing out that vital to pointing people to Jesus, vital to pointing people to the reality of what it means to have a right relationship with God is our own personal surrender. We clearly aren't called to submit to non-believers in believing error or committing crimes or violating our conscience or compromising our relationship with the Lord, but we're to look for every opportunity in humility and honesty to serve in the power of God's Holy Spirit. But this call for many people is an unwelcome call. Why in the world are we called? To unjust suffering. Peter's answer in part is because we identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ suffered for us. And the suffering of Jesus wasn't simply historical or accidental or tragic. Jesus, the eternal, the self-existent being, everlasting love, in union with the Father, abandons his position of power and peace in order to pursue you and me. For what reason? We know what reason. A world and a universe is created for Adam and Eve. Um, our first parents are given the ability to choose or choose otherwise. Adam and Eve they sin. They find themselves in a place of cosmic rebellion. Sin becomes a part of both their nature and our nature. Sin with death. The creator must become the redeemer. God will enter human history born of the seed of Adam, Noah, Shem, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David. The whole Bible is an unveiling of God's plan to love you. And to save you, Jesus will be born of a virgin. Jesus will be circumcised the eighth day. By the way, this is going to be his first experience with pain. The suffering of Jesus didn't begin on the cross. It began 
days after he was born. As a matter of fact, he'll grow up. He'll suffer at the hands of the religious leaders. He'll suffer loneliness. He'll experience hatred and fear and the suspicion of others. He'll suffer rejection and the bitter pill of abandonment by those who profess love and affection for him. And Peter will be one of those people who will deny him with oaths and curses. Judas will betray him for a handful of shekels. Jesus will weep and pray in a garden and the blood vessels at the surface of his skin will burst and he'll experience great drops of blood. He'll be falsely accused. He'll be beaten and scourged and finally crucified. He'll experience wave after wave after wave of pain because guess what? His central nervous system is intact. And his body will begin to shut down as it cuts off the pain signals to his brain. He'll be abandoned, at least he'll feel abandoned by God. And you're making a terrible mistake. You're making a terrible mistake if you fail to connect the dots. That Jesus' suffering wasn't just simply to satisfy God but to serve as your substitute. By the way, Peter isn't alone in this matter. Paul also writes in Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, For to you it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. And so here in chapter 2, when it says for To this you were called because he suffered, leaving us an example. The word example is very, very interesting in the original language. It's the word hupogramos. Now that might not seem all that important to you, but it was a word that the Greeks would describe a child's copybook. Do you remember, um, some of you, are old enough to remember when the teacher would actually put a pattern on the chalkboard and there would be A, B, C's, and you were asked to write exactly the way that the teacher wrote. There was a copy book. And that's what this is. It's a copy book. The schoolmaster would write the letter. As a matter of fact, not only would the schoolmaster write the Hebrew letter, but, or the Greek letter, but then the child's responsibility was to copy the form and then copy the word and then copy the sentence. The idea is an exact copy. That's the pattern that we're to follow. Now, also, you're probably aware that there's two kinds of examples. Good example... And bad example, when I was in high school, my football coach would say, Jeracy, you're the perfect example of what it means to be a bad football player. Hey, I was happy to be some kind of an example. A group of children in the nursery were yelling and shouting and arguing, and the mother went in and and she said, what are you kids fighting about? And they said, we're not fighting, we're playing mommy and daddy. When I first went on staff at a church in in New Mexico, I remember flying in for the first time and I I arrive and I'm driving to the new church and there's a guy right in front of me. He has a bumper sticker. It says, honk if you love Jesus. And so I honked. And he turned around and he said, the light's still red, dirtbag. I read a story in the Associated Press, a driver's ed teacher from Durham, North Carolina, he was giving a lesson and according to the Associated Press, the police said that the teacher, age 36, had a student driver at the wheel and another car had cut them off and at that time, the teacher went into a road rage and it's alleged that he ordered the student to pursue the other car and when the other car pulled over, the driver's ed teacher got out of his car, walked over and punched the guy in the nose. The guy with the bloody nose got back into his car, drove off and then for God knows what reason, the teacher then told him to continue following the car. 
Eventually, the police pulled over the driver's ed car for speeding, and the motorist with the bloody nose circled back and reported the incident to the police. The driver's ed teacher was arrested and charged with assault, which is punishable by 60 days in jail. He was released on $400 bail. He was suspended from his job. Then he resigned. Do you remember when you took driver's ed and the driver's ed said, today we're going to study road rage? No, that was never supposed to be a part of the curriculum. There's examples and there's bad examples. In Topeka, Kansas, there was a minister named Charles Sheldon. And he had it in his heart to attract local college students and to present Christ to them. And he began preaching a series of practical Sunday evening sermons on what it meant to follow Jesus in business, follow Jesus in journalism, follow Jesus in whatever career you happen to have. And from those series of messages, he wrote magazine articles. And then those magazine articles were formed into a book called In His Steps. And the book's theme, of course, is what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does that mean? For Sheldon, it meant living a life of honesty and humility and a life of sacrifice, a willingness to embrace the spirit of Jesus. It isn't just simply following his words. It isn't just growing your hair long and, and wearing earth shoes. And you guys are probably way too young to remember earth shoes. They were really ugly shoes. I wore them. You know what I have to believe? That when I get to heaven, God is going to give me a keen sense of fashion. We follow Jesus. But it isn't in following Jesus that saves us. It isn't just simply walking the path that he walked. It isn't following in his footsteps. It isn't just simply listening to the words that he said and even believing the words that he said. We have to identify with him. His life, his death, and his resurrection. And that's why Peter goes not just simply to the issue of knowing him and loving him and following him and believing him. But in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 22 he says, Who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. You know, Peter remembers his total perfection. As a matter of fact, he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 53 verse 9. Remember, Peter grew up as a Jew and remained an observant Jew. He grows up as a Jew. He remains an observant Jew. He sees in the Old Testament the types and shadows of Jesus. He sees in Isaiah chapter 53 the coming Messiah fulfilled, in fact, in the person of his friend. By the way, who committed no sin. The reason why he brings this up, the suffering of Jesus was completely unjust. By the way, did Jesus ever commit a crime? Did he, Jesus ever tell a lie? Did he ever have a bad thought? Did he ever say a bad word? Did he ever do anything bad at any point at any time? Would you say that the suffering of Jesus and the execution of Jesus was not just simply a tragic circumstance, but has there ever been a more tragic circumstance? Has anyone ever deserve to die less than this particular person? And that's the whole idea. Because Peter wants to address this issue of unjust suffering. What if I'm experiencing problems because of my government? What if I'm experiencing problems because of my marriage? What if I'm experiencing problems because of my job? Peter's not living in la-la land. He understands that people are in pain and people are in trouble and they were facing huge difficulties. It's been the constant statement that I've made as we've continued our study in this particular passage of Scripture. 
There are at least four references to Isaiah in this passage. Verse 22, he quotes Isaiah 53.9. Verse 23, he quotes Isaiah 53.7. In verse 24, he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, and also verse 12. And in verse 25, he quotes Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6. What do you suppose Peter's thinking about? Yeah, he's got Isaiah on his mind. He doesn't just simply appeal to his own personal experience, but the reality that's found in the, in the Bible. Could you imagine spending three years with anyone and then not finding some flaw, some problem, some sin, some area that you could point to and go, well, you know, he's not perfect. But here Peter, after spending day and night, week after week, Month after month, year after year with Jesus, he says, who committed no sin. The prophecy of Jesus is confirmed and witnessed in Peter's own personal experience. Even Judas, who betrayed Jesus for the blood money, he goes to the temple and he declares the innocence of Jesus. In Matthew 27, 4, he said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And they said, what is that to you? You see to it. Even as an unbeliever, even when I was wickedly growing up in a world estranged from God and estranged from Christ, I was, at least, I was fascinated by the life of Jesus, weren't you? Here's this guy, he grows up. <laughs> Larry King's going off the air, finally. <laughs> yeah, he first went on the air, I think, with the invention of television. But he was asked the question, if you could interview one person in all of human history, who would it be? And he said, I would interview Jesus Christ. And I would have one question for him. Were you born of a virgin? And he asked the question because if he was born under extraordinary circumstances, then it makes sense to how to evaluate his extraordinary life. If, in fact, God is his father, if, in fact, he is completely human and completely divine, if, in fact, the biblical prophecies concerning him are true, if, in fact, he died on the cross for sin and he rose from the dead, if, in fact, he was born under extraordinary circumstances and died under extraordinary circumstances and rose from the dead under extraordinary circumstances, Larry King was said, I would be open and probably willing to at least consider his claims. Jesus never lied. There was no deceit found in his mouth. Jesus never lied. He never, ever found any reason to misrepresent himself or his ministry. Look what it says again. Nor was deceit found in his mouth. Well, what about the time he said, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. Was he lying then? According to the prophecy of Isaiah, he wasn't lying. According to Peter, he wasn't lying. According to this particular passage of Scripture, there was no good reason for Jesus being accused. There was no good reason for him being condemned to death. Now think about this. When he stood before Pilate, was he found innocent or was he found guilty? He was found innocent. How many people do you know who are found innocent and then executed? Rod Blagojevich, the former governor of, of Illinois, was indicted on some 16 counts, felony counts of all kinds of different things. He was found guilty of one count of lying to an FBI agent. Did you know that it is an actual felony to lie to an FBI agent in the course of an investigation? It's not a felony to lie just for if you're joking around. But in the course of an investigation, if you lie to the federal agent, you, or misrepresent the truth, you can go to jail. He never lied. In a world where a person is innocent and is even found innocent and then sentenced to death. This is the point that Peter is trying to make for the Christian who is reading this book. 
The point that he's desperately trying to make is that when the Christian makes the complaint of experiencing unjust criticism, unjust persecution, unjust suffering as a result of their relationship with Jesus Christ. Actually, the point that Peter is making is that this is a good thing and not a bad thing. In verse 23, he says, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Not only was Jesus perfect in his behavior, but he was also perfect in his restraint. In other words, the point that he is making, what can we learn from our role model? What can we learn from the standard? Did Jesus suffer blamelessly? Did Jesus suffer graciously? Did Jesus trust in such a way that he committed during the presence of his suffering to his heavenly father? And that's the invitation that's extended to you. Because I'll guarantee you that your first option in suffering is usually going to be, I'm going to complain. And I'm going to protest. But rather than complain and protest, Peter says, guess what? Jesus suffered blamelessly. Jesus suffered graciously. And then Jesus commits his life and his ministry to the lordship of his heavenly father. And once again, Peter appeals to to Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed. And he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. The word translated reviled, by the way, can also be translated abused. Reviled typically meant abusive speech. Well, you know, I'm being abused. How are you being abused? Verbally. I'm being verbally abused. How are you being verbally abused? Well, my husband, my wife, the boss is engaging in abusive speech and threatening speech. And I just won't stand for that. Really? That's right. Jesus did not return abusive speech. Jesus did not return threatening behavior with abusive speech and threatening behavior. By the way, if you're the second person of the Trinity and you can pretty much do whatever you want and a person engages in abusive speech with you and Jesus just goes, toast. And they're all turned into toast. If anyone who had the power to exercise unlimited possibilities it was Jesus but Jesus doesn't return abusive speech by the way do you think that it's abusive to be (laughs) to be brought under the suspicious circumstances where your mother is accused of having you out of wedlock by the way if you've ever been maligned and if a person has ever said something about your mother, true or false, what's your immediate response? Uh, You're not going to be able to get away with that. Jesus is accused of being born out of wedlock in John chapter 8, verse 41. They literally accuse him of being a child of fornication. They accuse him of being a Samaritan. Now you might think that's not so bad, but you have to understand the culture and society. Being accused of a Samaritan was like the worst thing that you could accuse somebody of. In California, when we were at the beach, there was this wife and husband and they were arguing and they were arguing and yelling and screaming and they were calling each other every vile name that they could imagine. And finally, in frustration, the wife, trying to think of the most painful, hurtful thing that she could call her husband, she said, you tourist. (laughs) Yeah, that's the worst thing. When you're in California, if you're a tourist, it doesn't get any lower than that. Jesus is accused of being born out of wedlock. Jesus is accused of being a Samaritan. Jesus is being accused of literally being possessed by demons. 
Hey, the reason why you're able to open blind eyes and deaf ears, the reason why you're able to do all of these incredible, remarkable things is you're in league with the devil. And you know what Jesus' response was? His response was, you dishonor me. At his trial before Caiaphas, members of the temple guard struck him. They took the palm of their hand and hit him right in the face. And he said in John 18, 23, If I have spoken evil, bear witness to the evil. But if well, why did you hit me? Jesus is verbally abused and Jesus is physically abused and he offers no threat. Now, again... Please do not misunderstand what I'm saying. If you leave this message and you go, Gino thinks it's okay to put up with abuse, you're, you're missing the point. Am I encouraging husbands to abuse their wives? No. Am I encouraging wives to not get out of a dangerous physical situation? Of course you're to get out of a dangerous physical situation. If someone throws a punch at you, it's, 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 it's in, you can, with good conscience, duck. You can get out of harm's way. That's not the point that, that's being made here. The point that, that Peter is making is that Jesus offers no threat. He, he doesn't return evil for evil. Jesus could have been tempted to threaten or punish when people nailed him to a cross, when they mocked him and heckled him, when he was suspended between heaven and earth. All he had to do was call a legion of angels and they would have come to his assistance. But here's what Jesus does. He entrusts himself to him who judges justly. Think about what's being said. Jesus was willing to let God's plan and God's purpose run its course for the glory of God and for your good situation. Jesus suffered patiently because he knew that God would have the final say. You should underline that statement. Jesus suffered patiently because he knew that God would have the final say. Are you willing to suffer patiently? Knowing that in the end, when the curtain is rolled back and when the books are open and when every wrong thing is made right, when every desperate thing is made whole, when every evil and wicked thing is finally brought to justice, are you willing to say with absolute confidence, I know that God will have the final say. Jesus suffered patiently and endured unbelief of the religious leaders and even his own followers. Jesus suffered patiently, endured a kangaroo court, a trial by religious leaders who had already made up their mind to execute him. Jesus suffered patiently and endured the insufferable lies of false witnesses knowing full well that the testimony of those false witnesses would lead to a brutal beating and a painful execution. And if anyone ever had the right to say, they're lying. In order to get out of a painful execution, it was Jesus. He committed himself to him who judges righteously. By the way, the verb committed means to entrust. It's imperfect, which means that Jesus continually entrusted. This becomes important to you because you might think, well, you know what? I trusted him on the job, but are you now saying I have to entrust myself in my marriage and I have to entrust him um, to the government and I have to entrust in the circumstances that I find myself in? This is exactly the point that Peter is making. In the world, you'll have tribulation in the world you're going to bear accusation in the world you're going to suffer unjustly but over and over and over and over again you're going to have to entrust yourself to the Lord you may have had to do it this morning you may have had to wake up this morning and say Lord I'm going to have to entrust myself to you once again because of what's going on in my heart or what's going on with me physically or what's going on in my marriage or going on in the job. 
he entrusted himself. Now, I want you to understand something. When it says, but he committed himself to him, I want you to note two things. Number one, he entrusts himself, but he also entrusts his sufferings. When he entrusts himself, he is trusting his mind and his heart and his circumstances. Peter suggests the knowledge that God will right every wrong and God will make all things perfect and God will make all things beautiful and God will make all things appropriate at exactly the right time. You know, there's a story of a man named Count Schwerin von Schwanenfeld. It's a big name. But in his last will and testament, he was executed on September 8, 1944 for his part in the plot to assassinate Hitler. He wrote in his last will and testament, quote, further, it is my desire that in that part of the gravel bed in my forest of Sadowitz, where the victims of the massacres of the late autumn of 1939 are laid to rest, that a very high oaken cross be erected as soon as the conditions of the time permit with the following inscription, here lie from 1400 to 1500 Christians and Jews. May God have mercy on their souls and on their murderers. You see, it's one thing to expect justice for yourself, but what if you're the one who played a role in that which is wicked or that which was evil or that which was wrong? What about you when you're the person who participated in something that was so wicked and so wrong, and you're wondering whether or not there can be forgiveness for you. There was a craze that swept the nation. It was the initials W, J, how did, what would Jesus do? WWJD, is that what it was? Yeah, my, I was wearing one of those things along. WWJD, my, my father looks at the bracelet and goes, WWJD, hey, I know what that means. Who wants Jack Daniels? <laughs> I go, Dad, that's actually not what it means. It means, what would Jesus do? He is the standard, but he's the substitute. Look at verse 24, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. You know the person who wrote these words witnessed the execution of Jesus? Don't you ever wonder if you could go back in space and time and that you could participate on, the, on a primary basis and you could say, I want to see if this is true. I want to see if this is true. Peter doesn't just simply say, I saw him bear our sin on his body, on the tree. Jesus quotes the Bible. He's quoting Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, where it says, the prophet wrote, he bore the sin of many, the sinless son of God bore our sin. As Peter is thinking about the passage in Isaiah, only Jesus could perform such a task. Jesus receives our penalty for dying. He dies in our place. It's this incomprehensible transaction that takes place that theologians call the atonement. God will place the sin of the world on the Lord Jesus Christ, not in a simple act of execution of an innocent person, but a cosmic transaction between a loving father and his son as he places the sum and the substance of your guilt, your transgression, your sin, your wickedness, it's laid on him. J. Denham Smith put it this way. All our sins were laid on Jesus. Jesus bore them on the tree. God who knew them laid them on him. And believing we go free. That is an amen. He isn't just simply the standard. He is 
the substitute or the full wrath that belongs to us and punishment that belongs to us goes to him. Booker T. Washington, one of my heroes, wrote, quote, the word atonement which occurs in the Bible again and again means literally at one meant to be at one with God is to be like God. Our real religious striving then should be to become one with God, sharing with him in our poor human way his qualities, his attributes. To do this, we must get the inner life, the heart right, and we shall then become strong where we have been weak, wise where we have been foolish. Do you want to be strong where you were weak? Do you want to be wise where you were foolish? Then think about what is being said. Wisdom, real wisdom comes in your identification with Jesus. In verse 24, it says that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness by whose stripes you were healed. What does it mean? That we, having died to sin, because we're united to God in Christ, we're united by faith in Jesus. Jesus, by being alive, by virtue of his resurrection, we have real relationship and unbroken fellowship that we, having to die to sins, Peter takes it one step further. He doesn't just simply say that Jesus died as a substitute for your sin, but something else happened when he died. You died too. Something fundamentally, something cosmically, something went away, never to return again, that we, having died to our sins. The point that Peter is making is, we are now free from sin's grip. We have the freedom to reckon the old sinful nature is dead. We are free. That means, here's Peter's point, we are no longer it's no longer necessary for us to be responsive to sin. So that when your heart or your mind says, I want to respond to sin, you have the ability to say, no, I'm not going to respond to sin because guess what? I'm saved in Christ. Jesus has forgiven me. I've identified myself with Jesus. We have the ability to no longer be motivated by sin or sin's desires or sin's goals. We're dead to sin, but to be dead to sin would leave an insufferable vacuum. And so what are we to do? We're to live for righteousness. That's what Peter says. We're to live for righteousness. And because we live for righteousness, note what Peter says, by whose stripes you were healed. What does this mean? By whose stripes you were. Does this mean that suffering of Jesus in the atonement supplies healing for both body and soul? Minimum, minimum, it must mean a restoration to wholeness with God. It's healing, if you will. It's the word I-A-O-M-A-I. The word was frequently used of spiritual healing in the New Testament. It means that in Matthew 13, 15. It means that in John 12, 40. It means that in Acts 28, 27. It means that in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 13. In this sense, Peter couldn't have meant it to mean healing on demand, which some false teachers and wicked heretics proclaim. They read this particular passage and they say, you know what this means? This means that you should never be sick. You should never suffer. Nothing should ever go wrong. What? What? How can you ignore every single verse that we've already covered? How can you read chapter 2, verse 21? For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Yeah, he's an example of suffering, but I don't have to suffer. I don't have to suffer in this world, and I don't have to suffer on the job, and I don't have to suffer in my marriage, and I don't have to suffer for any reason whatsoever. Well, guess what? You have some work cut out for you. Because you're resisting God's plan. Kenneth Wiest gives a first a description. He says, quote, the word stripes 
in the Greek present a picture of our Lord's lacerated back after the scourging he endured at the hands of the Roman soldiers. The Romans used scourges of cords or thongs to which later were attached pieces of lead or brass or small sharpened pointed bones. Criminals condemned to crucifixion were ordinarily scourged before being executed. The victim was stripped to the waist, bound in a stooping position with his hands behind the back to a post or to a pillar and the body was frightened lacerated. The Christian martyrs in Smyrna about 155 AD were so torn by the scourges that their veins were laid bare. Their inner muscles were revealed. The sinews began to come apart. Their intestines were exposed. Peter remembered the body of our Lord after the scourging and the flesh was so dreadfully mangled that the disfigured form appeared in his eyes as one single bruise. Have you ever seen a person in a car accident going 40, 50 miles an hour and they go right through the windshield and their whole body is, is black and blue? And it swells. That's what this means. By his bruise. By that singular bruise. His suffering. It makes you whole. So why did Jesus suffer and die? In part be to provide healing and wholeness and a home for your soul. Look what it says in verse 25. For you were like sheep going astray, but now you've returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Peter may have been thinking again of Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. Sheep were in constant danger. Now remember, Peter's a fisherman, but he understands what it means to be a shepherd. And because sheep were in constant danger, they're also in need of constant protection. We drift towards those things that interest us. A sheep will follow the smell of water and the hope of a pasture land. But sheep are in constant danger from predators. And so he says, for you were like sheep going astray. In constant danger. Always going your own way. Doing exactly what you wanted to do. But now Peter points out, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer. The reason why he says that is because he's writing to a group of people who have entered into a right relationship with the Father through the Son. They've returned through the Lord Jesus. Through conversion, what the Bible calls regeneration, they've abandoned their sin and their unbelief and they've embraced Jesus as the Lord and the Savior. And so Peter describes the Lord God as the shepherd who watches and protects and leads and feeds. Remember, this was, this was what was entrusted to him. After Jesus rose from the dead, remember Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? He said, yes. He said, feed my lambs. He said, do you love me? Yes. Feed my sheep. Do you love me? You know that I love you. Then feed them and guide them and lead them. He knew that he was simply the under shepherd. He wasn't the great shepherd. Now return to the shepherd and overseer of your soul. The word overseer is episkopos. Peter understood. Peter understood that ultimately, 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 our leading, our guiding, our feeding, our provision comes from Christ. I read a story. That sheep aren't very strong or swift or smart. John Phillips, he talks about growing up in New Zealand and before the days of refrigeration, how sheep had to be transported live to their destination. And a dock hand who had often heard about how stupid sheep were decided he was going to do a little experiment. He wanted to see if a sheep could figure out for himself if he could jump over an obstacle or an obstruction. And that proved way beyond the intelligence of the sheep he put a little little blockade there and the sheep stopped and it and all of them stopped 
Then the dock hand gently lifted the first sheep over the obstacle. And then he lifted the second sheep over the obstacle. And by the time the third sheep came, it started jumping over the obstacle. And then everyone started jumping over the obstacle one by one by one. They began to jump over the obstacle and he stopped them and then he removed the obstacle. And you know what happened? They continued to jump over something that wasn't even there. That's how stupid sheep are. We're afraid of things that are there. And we're afraid of things that aren't there. And so Peter says, you can re reproduce the Lord's example in your life, but that's going to be impossible unless you accept his atonement. You won't be able to follow in his steps unless you're willing to embrace his death and embrace his life and embrace him as master. And that's what that means. We accept him as our atonement in verse 24. We accept him as our life at the end of verse 24. We accept him as our master in verse 25. Peter's point, we're given power. We're given peace. We're given purity. We're given protection. We're given what we need. And you're going to need peace, and you're going to need power, and you're going to need purity, and you're going to need protection. The moment that you decide to identify with Jesus. You know, we're having a baptism later on this afternoon. And that's what a baptism is. It's where you publicly go on record. It's where you publicly go on record. And you say, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I'm going to identify with him in his life. And I'm going to identify with him in his death. And I'm going to identify with him in his resurrection. Knowing that if I will identify with him now. He will identify with me later. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord we thank you and praise you. For the word of God. That Lord we have a standard a perfect standard, that we have a substitute, a perfect substitute, that we have a shepherd, a perfect shepherd who leads and guides a pattern, who provides power and protection. Lord, I pray for that person who has been halted by an obstacle that they don't see any way around. That they keep jumping over a hoop that doesn't even exist. For the person who thinks that in order to have a right relationship with you, that they have to have a right relationship with religion or with a form of religion, they have no idea that it's about a relationship with you, friendship with you, love for you identification with you. Lord, I pray, I pray, I pray that we could learn quickly and that, Lord, we would be willing to embrace exactly what you've called us to so that the ultimate end might be achieved knowing that in this world we're called to identify with Jesus, to identify with his life, to identify with his suffering, to identify with his death so that we could embrace his glory in the not too distant future. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.